I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Jonathan Escoffrey on his debut, If I Survive You. Jonathan Escoffrey is the recipient of the 2020 Plimpton Prize for Fiction, a 2020 National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship, and the 2020 ASME Award for Fiction. His fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, American Short Fiction, Electric Literature and elsewhere. He is a PhD fellow at the University of Southern California and in 2021 was awarded a Wallace Stegner Fellowship in the Creative Writing Program at Stanford. If I Survive You is his first book and was long listed for the National Book Award for Fiction in 2022. And literally just as we are recording this, it's been long listed for the Penn Faulkner Prize. Jonathan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you. First of all, tell us how you would describe the book. Well, it's a collection of linked stories uh, that follows a Jamaican family who's emigrated. They've left their native Kingston. They're landing in Miami, Florida, and it's there that they have their second son, Trelawney, who has a difficult time figuring out how he fits within the family dynamic and how he fits within his country of birth as the son of Jamaican immigrants. And as this kind of uh, hard to pin down, multi-generationally, multiracial character who is kind of denied, in a sense, um, parts of his lineage as he tries to embrace his Jamaicanness, But at the same time, he's not the ideal American as America has its racial problems and its um, difficulties, I guess. Chalani finds it difficult to figure out how he fits within this family dynamic and and how he's fitting within his country of birth, uh, the United States, as the son of Jamaicans. And he winds up having a falling out with his father as he is trying to reclaim his Jamaicanness, and his father is telling him that he doesn't really know anything about Jamaica and, and couldn't really doesn't really have the right to claim it. And they have this big falling out, and Chalani is left living out of his vehicle and picking up odd internet jobs. And we follow along as he takes up these different jobs that kind of challenge his sense of morals and his personal ethics, uh, but also challenge his determination to survive and put a roof back over his head. So you mentioned the book is a a series of linked stories. It's one of those books that, that does really walk that line between, is this a collection of short stories? Is it a novel? 
um, because the stories, as you said, they're all interlinked, although they're told in very different styles. And that's something we'll come on to in a second. But first of all, just tell me why you decided on this format of the linked short stories. You know, I started off trying to write a novel. Well, that's, you know, anytime I make a statement like that, I always have to walk it back because I, I never quite know what the starting point is. I wrote a short story that introduced me to these characters, uh, Trelawney, his older brother, Delano, and their parents, particularly Topper, the father. And it was a story that kind of poured out of me and I didn't really know what it was. It was very short. So I wasn't sure if it was even uh, a fully formed story, standalone story. I decided after thinking about it, that maybe this was the uh, a chapter that opened a novel. I knew I wanted to explore this world and these characters a lot more. And so I, I continued to attempt to write what would have been a chapter two to this novel in the making. And what that started to look like was, you know, separate stories, stories that followed Delano, the uh, Chelani's brother. Chelani gets the most page time, so I tend to think of him as my main character. But there's a story that follows his cousin, uh, Cookie, and a story called Splashdown. I started to realize I I wanted to explore the world, but I wanted to explore in these kind of self-contained stories that could, in a sense, step away from the major kind of storyline or plot points about Chelani trying to uh, figure out how he fits in, in the family and his decision to try to wrestle control of the house from from his brother and um, prove himself in his father's eyes. But I wanted to be able to step away and think, well, if that's Trelawney's goal, what is Delano going through uh, when we spend a morning with him? Or, you know, what if Trelawney is looking at his father very critically, you know, what led his father to the decision in conjunction with uh, his wife, Sonia, to leave Jamaica in the first place and move the family? The characters who were most, I guess, criticized by my main character, I felt it was important to actually give them room to say their piece, in a sense. <laughs> um, it's not a an, it's not a literal argument. There's actual stories happening on the page, but in a sense, I wanted them to be able to defend themselves and, and have a point of view and maybe redeem themselves in the eyes of the reader. So part of it was me trying to figure out just this world and these characters. And that's kind of how the the form came to be. When it came to time to publish, some people were still, you know, thinking of it more as a novel and some more as stories. And for me, I, you you actually brought up the point that they're told in very different. They're told in different points of view. You know, first, second, third person point of view. They're also kind of stylistically different. Some of them are anyway. And I mean, for me that lent itself more to calling it stories rather than thinking of it as this this novel that's trying to do these these different strange things although to be honest the label is not that important to me personally just because you know throughout the years I was working on this I was calling it stories and I was calling it a novel and I was calling it a novel and stories and I was calling it interlinked stories and all the different things so but this is this is what came out after I I called it quits and decided it was time to put this out into the world. So you mentioned the um, the narrative perspectives and and there are indeed there are stories told in the more usual first and third person, but also the more unusual and, and often interesting second person. And we could talk about why in a second. But also, I did notice that 
one of the central themes of the book is Chaloni's rejection by his father, Topper, and the difference, how he's chosen his brother over himself. And they are very different in numerous ways that we'll cover as, as we go through the interview. Even Delano and Topper even share the same eye colour, for instance, and Chaloni doesn't. But one thing he does share, the one thing he does share with his father is being told in second person. And and I wonder if that was deliberate. It was in a sense, or I should say in part, it was deliberate. I mean, something that was also deliberate was this idea of both of these men as um, having, I mean, really all three of the, the men in the story, they have these artistic inclinations Topper, when he's a a young man, when he's a teenager, he has these ideas of studying fashion design and he keeps a sketchbook. And, you know, even when he gets married, he designs the suit that he wears that is eventually, you know, tailored and that he wears to his wedding. And uh, later on, when he's having these struggles with his job or struggles uh, having left one job and having yet to find his next job when the family is in Miami, he he decides he's going to sketch these these landscapes uh, from back home in Jamaica and try to sell them at the flea market. And he's he's trying to kind of hang on to that artistic side of him. But as a young man, his father told him, you know, he'd better be a realistic one. And also fashion design is not a manly enough thing to do. And so he'd better just work at his father's construction company. And after a time, I think Topper agrees that that is the better way to move forward and the better way to be a man in the world and a better way to do his part to support his family. And I think he passes some of those judgments on to his own son, even though he had his own experiences of wanting to explore art. Meanwhile, Chelani is uh, wanting to be a, a writer and his his father calls him soft. He doesn't think he would make it in Jamaica. He doesn't think he would really even make it in Miami, which, you know, in fairness, Chomani does struggle to do. But I, I think they're more similar than they even realize. And so, you know, for me, it's always really a fascinating thing to have characters who, you know, they may have these opinions of each other, but us as readers, as we enter, you know, we have the ability that they don't, which is that we can actually enter their stories and enter their thoughts and see how they're seeing the world and how they're experiencing the world. And we know things that they don't know about each other. And, you know, it kind of increases the sense of this, there's a kind of tragic nature to their inability to connect with one another, which I don't know. I think possibly that's my worldview of, of the way that we, we can only in a sense, like get so close to one another as, as human beings, but literature does that wonderful thing of bringing us into these characters minds and thoughts and and their lives and i wanted the second person to kind of reflect like that that they're actually both pouring over the details of their own lives and they're both interested in the choices that they've made and trying to figure out why they've made those choices and deal with the consequences of those choices and and in that in those ways i, I wanted them to actually be more similar than than they were realizing in the first story Chelani is constantly asked everywhere he goes, whether it's when he's a child in, in Miami, moving to a different school, when he goes to the Midwest to go to college. Um, he's constantly asked this question, what is he? What are you? 
and you explore various different ideas of, of identity in the book. But let's talk about this very blunt question. What are you? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I have witnessed or <laughs> experienced almost exclusively worded that way in Miami. And, you know, mind you, I, I grew up in the 80s and the, the 1990s and experienced it well well beyond that. But I, I think because, you know, it's, it's a, a city of immigrants, truly. It's the city in the United States that has the most foreign-born residents. It has people coming from all over and living, you know, side by side and trying to figure out what to do with one another. And uh, I think, you know, sometimes that question is a question that is trying to deal with race. I think it's sometimes trying to deal with ethnicity. I think it's trying to deal with nationality at times. I think it's a, a question that makes people know, people want to know what to do with one another in ways that they're trying to make quick decisions as to whether or not to see you as friend or foe, <laughs> to see you as somebody who may add value to their lives or somebody who may detract from their lives based on their prejudices and their assumptions. And, you know, Chelani has that experience as somebody who is a little bit harder to pin down again, because I think there are just multiple ways to look at it as somebody who Chelani is um, presenting as this mixed person. So even even when he's in, I talk a lot about what he goes through in Miami, but even when he is in the Midwest, you know, first he has this experience where people, in a sense, they stop asking, what are you? And they just say, hey, you're Black, so tell us what Blackness means. And he feels uh, not quite equipped to do that because that's such a, one is such a big question. It's also like, what is the Black experience? How do we boil that down? Especially as somebody who has been told at times that he's not actually Black or not Black enough. But, you know, in the Midwest, people are also looking at him and they're saying, oh, well, like, well, tell us which one of your parents is white. And there's this becomes this assumption that he must be biracial in the way that we tend to think of biracial people as one solid one parent who is solidly one race and another who is of a different race. And that's not at all his experience there. So he, he has to kind of respond to that. And then he has people assuming uh, that he's Muslim. And, and there's any number of assumptions that are being made about him. And he's trying to, he himself is trying to figure out if he, whatever it is he claims, people will continue to try to put him in, in some other box. And he's not really sure what to do with that, especially as somebody who didn't initially embrace his own Jamaicanness. He knows his parents are Jamaican. He knows that's where his lineage leads back to. And yet when he tries to finally embrace that, he has at least one parent telling him that he has no claim to his Jamaicanness. And so, you know, he's, he's trying to figure out what to do with that as well. And, you know, I think it's... <laughs> um, I've heard the book talked about as um, a representation or a replication of today's obsession with uh, identity. And, you know, I th this country was founded on obsessions. Uh, this country, meaning the United States, has been founded on its obsession with identity and putting people in boxes and, and using people for exploiting people's uh, work based on their the color of their skin or what box we can put them in, regardless of their possibly their their literal uh racial makeup. I think this is just the the contemporary version of something that's been happening for for hundreds of of years in a sense. And as an author you're always trying to 
look at, you know, how do we reflect the human experience as we're experiencing it today, even if we're looking at, you know, the the past and and historical events. And so I suppose that has a lot to do with uh, my interest in, in this particular phenomenon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jonathan Escoffrey, and we're talking about his new novel, If I Survive You. And Jonathan, I just want to spend some time looking at Topper and Sanya, who are um, Trelawney and Delano's parents, and specifically, I guess, from the perspective of Topper's story in this book of him coming from Jamaica to the US. Um Remind us something about, I guess, post-independence Jamaica, what happened there? Right. So post-independence Jamaica, for the first time, had the ability to, the citizens had the ability to elect their own leadership. And so there was a moment in the, I mean, what's the part that's relevant to the book is there was a moment where Michael Manley is elected prime minister and he begins to push and and spout a more socialist agenda. And for a lot of middle-class Jamaicans, people who had, you know, through luck and a lot of other uh, historical factors go into the people who wound up being able to own homes and employ domestic staff and own vehicles. And the people who were afraid that the socialist agenda was going to mirror something like what happened in Cuba, which is right next door to Jamaica, they became very afraid of those policies. But meanwhile, on an international scale, the United States, also very close by, was 
very interested in no more Caribbean islands and none of their neighbors following suit with Castro. Obviously, the we have the, the Cold War considerations with the U.S. and uh, the USSR. The U.S. interest in trying to make sure that there are no collaborations that look anything like uh, Cuba's um, and, and bringing communism essentially to the U.S.'s door. And so there was a lot of intervention from the United States in Jamaica. And meanwhile, there's also the other political party of the JLP and the PNP who are going back and forth and trying to swing the votes. But you also have this kind of CIA intervention that what and what that looks like is that a lot of drugs are brought into the country, a lot of guns, weapons are, are brought into the country. And so now these different political parties are kind of the violence and the, or I should say the the conflict between them that looks not that devastating in terms of loss of life was suddenly the flames were fanned and suddenly there was um, this uptick in, in violence. And so what happened as a result is that a lot of uh, the middle class started to flee the country. And you had things like people uh, smuggling money out of the country because you were only allowed to take so much money out of the country. Uh, Michael Manley famously said, you know, if you want to leave, talking to the middle class, if you want to leave Jamaica, there are five flights a day to Miami and you can go anytime you want, but you're not going to take your money with you. And so that obviously scared a lot of the the middle class. And so uh, a lot of people wound up leaving. And that's kind of the the setting that we're finding Sonia and Topper when we're we're meeting them in, in uh Topper's story uh as as they make that decision to to go ahead and move their firstborn and, and themselves to to Miami. And so we end up in Miami and you paint a very vivid picture of the city of Miami over over a number of decades. One part of that history particularly, which is about Hurricane Andrew, which I'd like you to tell us a little bit about. Yeah, so and if you grow up in Miami, there's always a, a storm on the way. Hurricane season is is about half the year. There's these tropical storms that are always coming. They turn into hurricanes and then they either hit you or they miss you. And basically prior to 1992, every time there was a, a major hurricane on the way, the news correspondence or the uh, the word of the day was, oh, could this be a a big one like the last big one. And the last big one hadn't been uh, since about 1926. And that caused major devastation and kind of wiped out a lot of the development in Miami Beach. And so that was that was Miami and South Florida's big one. And then in 1992, Hurricane Andrew hit South Florida and really devastated much of Miami and much of the cities just south of Miami. And so in the the book, this family is, they've purchased their first home together, a townhouse, and they're not necessarily taking this hurricane seriously because, again, there's always a hurricane on the way and they either do very little damage or they miss altogether up until Andrew, which hits and kind of destroys their home and destroys a lot of uh, Miami itself. And they have to kind of rebuild after that in in various ways. And bringing it forward to the future, in well, not the future, but the um, in the book, I think up to about 2012, the book goes. Um, one of the things that you look at, which is obviously affecting 
all of America, but you know, this is in the context of of the city of Miami. Um, is both in well, certainly in the last story, you talk about gentrification, but I'm thinking more to the um the story independent living. And um, Chiloni has been homeless. He spent a number of the stories living out of his car. And tell us something about the the homeless situation there at the moment. It's growing increasingly difficult to so the book takes us past the you know what we call the the great recession so 2008-2009 Trelawney comes home from college he he can't find a job he winds up living out of his vehicle and I mean that's the context of the where we find him in that story independent living where people he's he's actually working in a building that it's nonprofit housing for the low income elderly people um and he himself is is unhoused at the time if we fast forward to today and we look at Miami it, the, the rents in Miami have have tripled in the the last uh several years and Miami is is of course in the state of Florida which i mean historically and and especially now is a place that is anti-government regulation quote unquote the the government will regulate your right to have certain books in school. Um, they will prevent you from saying the word gay in a in a public school. You can't say gay. You you can't teach um, African American history in a Florida school now. But they're you know quote unquote anti um, government uh, control over your decisions. And so the point being, there's there's very little in the way of rental protections or, or any kind of protections that would actually help people keep off the streets. And so we, we do see that um, kind of increase in people's ability to put a house, a roof over their, their heads. And um, of course, it's the homeless numbers are, are multiplying kind of rapidly. But then again, I, I live in the state of California now. And so even as a, a progressive state, you know, homelessness is, is everywhere here. And so it's, it's, a, it's a national crisis. And, you know, we're still trying to figure out what, what to do about that. I think as a fiction writer, you know, you're trying to bring people to a place where they can kind of understand what those challenges might look like and uh, hopefully empathize with people's uh, struggles, even if they haven't experienced it themselves. So yeah, I mean, as a fiction writer, I have not, so <laughs> I, I don't have the, I don't have the solution, but I do know, you know, having lived all over the country, I mean, there are places where, you know, at least in California, you can only raise rents to a certain percentage each year. Whereas a place like Miami, if your lease is up, your lease is up and, and they'll just double or triple your rent the next day. And, and this is an example where government regulation would be a very good thing for those people who their salary certainly has not doubled or, or tripled just because, you know, things like inflation are happening or because, you know, the tech industry has moved to, to Miami. And now a lot of people who have the money to uh, buy more expensive homes are being catered to by developers and by landlords. And if, if there is no government you know, regulation to say, well, just because someone owns the house next door to the, the condo, the high rise that just got built, and now they're going to decide property values worth a lot more. And, and now, you know, that rent that was $1,200 is now $5,000. You know, a lot of people are going to be out on the street. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? 
Absolutely. So I'm going to read from the beginning of the book, um, which the book opens up on a story titled Influx, and I'll read just the first few pages. It begins with, what are you, hollered from the perimeter of your front yard when you're nine, younger probably. You'll be asked again throughout junior high and high school, then out in the world, in strip clubs, in food courts, over the phone and at various menial jobs. The askers are expectant. They demand immediate gratification. Their question lifts you slightly off your pre-adolescent toes, tilting you, not just because you don't understand it, but because even if you did understand this question, you wouldn't yet have an answer. Perhaps it starts with, what language is your mother speaking? This might be the genesis, not because it comes first, but because at least on this occasion, you have some context for the question when it arrives. You immediately resent this question. Why does your mother talk so funny? Your neighbor insists. Your mother calls to you from the front porch, has called from this perch overlooking the sloping yard since you were allowed to join the neighborhood kids in play. Always the signals that playtime is over. Only now, shame has latched itself to the ritual. Perhaps you'd hoped no one would ever notice. Perhaps you'd never noticed it yourself. Perhaps you ask in shallow protest, what do you mean what language? Maybe you only think it. Ultimately, you mutter, English, she's speaking English, before going inside, head tucked in embarrassment. In this moment, for the first time, you are ashamed of your mother, and you are ashamed of yourself for not defending her. More than to be cowardly and disloyal, though, it's shameful to be foreign. If you've learned anything during your short residence on Earth, you've learned this. It's America, and it's the 80s, and at school, in class, you pledge to one and one flag only, the Stars and Stripes. Greatest country on Earth is the morning anthem. It's the lesson plan, a mantra drilled into you day in, day out, a fact as inarguable as 2 plus 2 equaling 4, and what you start to hear, as you repeat this to yourself, is the implication that all other nations, though other nations are seldom mentioned in school, are inferior. You believe this. It's an easy lesson to internalize, except that your brother, Delano, your parents, nearly all your living relatives, are Jamaican. When your play cousin moves from Kingston to Miami, to your Cutler Ridge neighborhood, winding up in your third grade class, refusing to pledge allegiance to your flag, you know to distance yourself from her. You say a quiet thanks that your last names are different. If you'd had any context for the question of what you are when it first came, you might have answered, American. You were born in the United States and you've got the paperwork to prove it. You feel pride in this fact, this inalienable status. You belt Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA on the 4th of July, and even more emphatically after visiting your parents' island nation for two weeks in your ninth summer. You disagree with every aspect of the island life, down to the general lack of central air conditioning. You prefer burgers and hot dogs to jerked or curried anything. Back at home, your parents accuse you of speaking, and even acting, like a real Yankee. But if by Yankee, they mean American, you embrace it. I speak English, you respond. Your parents' patois and what many deem an indecipherable accent still play as normal, almost unnoticeable against your ears, except that it is increasingly paired with the punitive. 
For instance, when your mother says, Unakan spill the thing on the tile, but Unakan clean it. And your brother says, no me, mommy. And you say, I didn't do it, mom. She'll say, then who did? Must be a duppy. The duppy becomes the scapegoat for all of the inexplicable activity that takes place in and outside your house. The duppy broke your mother's vase, then tried to glue it back together. The duppy hid your brother's report card underneath his mattress. The duppy possessed your father, dragged his body out for drinks after work, and didn't bring him home until morning. A duppy, or ghost, or even a grown man can be difficult to discipline, so you and your brother alone share the punishments. So I've been talking to Jonathan Escoffrey. We've been talking about his book, If I Survive You, which is out in the UK from Forty State. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 